This is Pizzicato Ost, and I am Leo Jivetsky. As announced in the season intro a week ago, um, in this following episode, we'll be covering music by, as we call it, Tchaikovsky and other Russians. And boy, was it hard to decide on a composer and a piece for this first episode. It took me a while, but the uh, decision's been made. Today, we'll be speaking of a piece by a composer whose name most non-Russian speakers mispronounce. This is also the case in the Kurtweil Ira Gershwin song that gave the inspiration to this season of Pizzicato Ost. So we speak of Milia Alexievich Balakirev. I specifically stress Balakirev and not Balakirev. Is it a name most listeners have heard? Definitely not. But maybe it makes this episode even more interesting. In any case, the Balakirev piece we'll be discussing today, Islamé, is known to pretty much any advanced pianist, as it is often referred to as the most difficult to play, or even, more dramatically, unplayable. I suggest we first talk about the composer, Mili Balakirev, and then pass on to the piece. First, let's set a historic context. Balakirev was born in 1836 in Nizhny Novgorod. The great poet Pushkin dies the next year. The Tsar Nicholas I is in the peak of his reign, leading the state with an eye towards progress on one hand. So the great Russian railroad projects are starting to come to life in that time. But also with massive censorship and restriction of civil freedoms. But this is all in the capital, in St. Petersburg. Whereas our protagonist spends his childhood in the trade city of Nizhny Novgorod, being trade in piano by his mother, and as it often happens when at home they notice an extraordinary talent, they take the kid to a specialist. With the young Balakirev, it was the known pianist, composer, teacher, Alexander Dubuc. Now, if Balakirev is a lesser-known name, then Dubuc is even more so. However, in Russia, especially if you're a voice student, you often come across either original songs by this composer or arrangements of folk songs made by him. We will now play one for you. Oh, 
We've just heard one of Dubuque's songs called the Ne Brani Minya Radnaya, performed by a uh, great old Soviet mezzo-soprano, Valentina Levko, who had quite a long career teaching voice after a long career in performing. And uh, I've been to some of her classes at the Gnesin Academy in Moscow years ago. She was quite a quite a tough old lady. Um, she died um, in 2018, aged 92. But anyway, back to the music. It's uh, interesting that at the time, most of Dubuque's songs were um, super popular with gypsy soloists and choirs. And this was one of the main sources of entertainment in the big cities, as is often mentioned in the classical literature from Pushkin to Tolstoy. These songs would be performed in restaurants and at parties and theaters and balls, as well as also sung by beggars in the streets in front of churches and played by hurdy-gurdies. What is worth mentioning here is that Dubuque, Balakirev's first official teacher, was known for arranging and rearranging music by other composers for solo piano, namely 40 Schubert songs. This is good to know because Balakirev would do this often himself with music of other composers when he became older. But now back to Balakirev, who, after some work with Dubuque in Moscow, is back in Nizhny Novgorod and continues to master his playing, also getting a grant from a local philanthropist and author of a big Mozart study, Alexander Ulibyshev. More of a formal education he's just physically not able to get. The first Russian conservatoire will only be founded in St. Petersburg when Balakirev is in his mid-twenties. In the meantime, Balakirev adores Glinka, specifically a trio from his opera A Life for the Tsar. I'm sure we'll speak of Glinka in later episodes, but now I will just say that he, um, over 30 years older than our protagonist, is considered to be the father of Russian classical music and the national opera. Let's hear this trio that Balakirev loved so much. Oh, oh, oh. 
So that was the uh, first act trio from Glinka's Life for the Tsar. 
It comes from a studio recording from 1957, conducted by composer-conductor, who was also mentioned in the song Tchaikovsky and Other Russians, the Kiev-born Igor Markevich, was also mispronounced in the song as Markevich. This was recorded with a great cast, the trio being Teresa Stichrendel, tenor Nikolai Gedda, and bass Boris Kristof. Balakirev, as most young men from good families at the time, has to get a proper education. And he does. First in Nizhny, then in Kazan. Studies mathematics, simultaneously teaching music to make money. His life changes, however, in 1855, when he's 19 years old, when his sponsor, Libyshev, takes him to St. Petersburg and arranges him to meet his idol, Glinka. He's now even more convinced that his vocation is to compose music in the national style, and he starts actively writing music and performing as a solo pianist. After the death of Glinka two years later in 1857, Balakirev begins to gather a circle of musicians with similar national views on the future of Russian music. He starts training them and adjusting their creativity according to his ideas. The group grows artistically and develops a very distinct musical and artistic image. So, 10 years later, in 1867, an article comes in the paper titled Mr. Balakirev's Slavic Concert. It ends with the following sentence, I will quote. God grant that our Slav guests may never forget today's concert. God grant that they may forever preserve the memory of how much poetry, feeling, talent, and intelligence are possessed by the small but already mighty handful of Russian musicians. This definition, the mighty handful, from an article by Vladimir Stasov, has remained with the group and this is how they're firmly set in music history books. Now, in English language musicology, they are usually referred to as the five, but the mighty handful um, is also quite a known and I think quite a powerful name. Now, Mr. Stasov, a literary and a critic, was, so to say, their spiritual leader. Balakirev, the musical chief, and the other four composers were Cesar Kui. Modest Mussorgsky, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov, and Alexander Borodin. You can check out the first season of the podcast to learn more about some of these composers.
And this was Balakirev's Overture on Czech Themes, performed by the BBC Philharmonic, led by Vasily Sinaisky. Now, The Mighty Handful only existed as a group for around 15 years. Balakirev was becoming more and more demanding towards the other members. Their music had to fit his ideas or views, um, so it didn't last for so long. But the group has nevertheless influenced Russian music quite a lot. Even internationally, it has been quite influential. In the 1920s, for instance, Les Six was a famous group of French-speaking composers. The name of the group was inspired by Balakirev's The Five. But we've jumped forward quite a bit. So let's go back to the mid-1850s, when the new Tsar Alexander II has stepped on the throne and times were changing modernization, progress, and innovation were in the air. The Russian Musical Society, Ruskoye Muzikalne Obshistva, and the conservatoires in St. Petersburg and Moscow were all established in the late 1850s, early 1860s. These, it so happened, were predominated by Germans and Jews, and by academics, which puts Balakirev in a partially rivaling camp, him being more of a musical nationalist, one may even say anti-Semite or xenophobe, and a strong believer in non-professional composers, one who rely more on experience than on theory. Furthermore, a personal rivalry with Anton Rubinstein or Rubinstein composer, pianist, and first director of the first Russian conservatoire in St. Petersburg, was probably also happening. Rubinstein was, at the time, the only Russian able to live on his art, while Balakirev had to live on the income from piano lessons and recitals played in the salons of aristocracy. There was also this petty, personal side to Balakirev's attacks, Rubinstein had written an article in 1855 that was critical of Glinka. Glinka had taken the article badly, so Balakirev likewise took Rubinstein's criticism very personally. Now, to counteract these criticisms and to aid in the creation of a distinctly Russian school of music, Balakirev and Gavril Lamakin, a local choir master, founded the Free School of Music, Bisplatnoe Musicalne Školo, in 1862. Like the Russian Music Society, the Free School offered concerts as well as education. Unlike the Russian Music Society, the Free School offered music education at no charge to students. The school also emphasized singing, especially choral singing, to meet the demands of the Russian Orthodox Church. So Lomakin was appointed director, with Balakirev serving as his assistant. To raise funds for the school, Balakirev conducted orchestral concerts, and Lomakin conducted choral ones. These concerts offered less conservative programming musically than the Russian Music Society. They included the music of Hector Berlioz, Robert Schumann, Franz Liszt, Glinka, Dargomyshsky, and also the first works of the Five, or the Mighty Handful. Balakirev, by the age of 30, mastered his conducting and organizational skills quite well. 
Besides, he kept close connection with the sister of the late Glinka, and in 1866, she offers him to present Glinka's operas, A Life for the Tsar and Ruslan and Lyudmila, to the European audience in Prague. Remember, back then, Prague was a major center of Austro-Hungarian culture. And now this, of course, gives me the opportunity to play to you one of the most brilliant pieces of Russian music, the overture to Glinka's Ruslan and Lyudmila.
Oh, man, I almost forgot to breathe in these five minutes. This version of the overture to Glinka's Ruslana Ludmila was recorded at a concert of the Leningrad Philharmonic in February 1965, conducted by Yevgeny Mravinsky. This is a truly remarkable recording. I would give a lot to have been at that concert. Thank God we have a recording of it, also quite well remastered. Now, this project presenting the two operas of Glinka in Prague was more than just an artistic and musical event. With the rise of national and nationalistic ideas in the Polish, Czech, Hungarian peoples, it is also about spheres of influence. In Prague, the production of Glinka's Life for the Tsar is being prepared by the Czech composer-conductor Smetana. Balakirev gets into uh, great conflicts with him and his team, saying they were trying to turn the whole project to a farce. The locals, on the other hand, even in the press, proclaim these productions are tools of pro-Russian propaganda and a Tsarist intrigue paid by the Russian government. Sounds a bit familiar some 160 years later, doesn't it? The production of Ruslan Lyudmila, however, is conducted by Balakirev and seems to be a total success and an inspiration for national composers to pursue the quest of creating local music. By the way, during this trip to Prague, Balakirev sketched his overture on Czech themes we've heard before. The one he played at the concert, after which Stasov wrote his article, first using the term Magucia Kuchka, the mighty handful. So, by his mid-30s, Balakirev is, along with his teaching and more so organizational activities, conducting quite a lot. In 1868, he becomes the director of the Free Music School. And slowly, sort of a competition develops between the Free Music School and the Russian Music Society. Unfortunately, this was not a productive competition for either of the sides. It results in confusion, awkwardness for the audiences, a lot of tension for the sponsors and guest performers, as well as the modern composers. So, already by the early 1870s, Balakirev finds himself in a desperate state. He is said to have experienced some sort of a nervous breakdown. He stops conducting and composing, gets an office job at the railway company, and is preparing to enter a convent. His fellow composers were seriously worried that he would burn all of his manuscripts to date. It takes Balakirev about five years to slowly start coming back to normal and restoring an interest in music. These five years of silence, although not such a huge amount of time, seem to mark a border between when the music of Balakirev was new, up-to-date, and revolutionary to some extent, and when it was seen old-fashioned, unnecessary, and passé. This is a time of great triumphs for many Russian composers, most notably Tchaikovsky, who was very fond of Balakirev and who had a complicated relationship with the Mighty Handful. In Balakirev's silent years, some of Tchaikovsky's great works appear, including the Third Symphony created in uh, 1875. And here's the scherzo 
the third movement of the symphony, played by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra under Claudio Abbado.
Balakirev, after returning to professional life, is again the director of the Free Music School from 1881 and also the court chapel in 1883. But he will never again be the influential and powerful leader figure he used to be. He became somehow strange. He gave up eating meat, which was quite unusual at the time. His house was filled with stray dogs, cats, and religious icons, as uh, contemporaries remember. While this is not always mentioned in biographies and maybe does not really matter in the artistic sense, it is still hard to ignore the fact that Balakirev was, as many at the time, especially after his silent years, aggressively nationalistic and anti-Semite. The Free School of Music was banned for Jews, This being said, living in St. Petersburg was also banned for Jews. Um, So this is not only this whim of one person. But with Balakirev, it was a bit more than the common Russian anti-Semitism. And Rubinstein, as his ultimate enemy, was also the ultimate Jew. And all Jews were to blame for any bad luck Balakirev had personally experienced. He will continue to compose and edit his works as well as edit and publish the works of Glinka, but his true active years are in the past. He dies aged 73 in 1910.
As a little summary to this very short biography of Balakirev, we've just heard his arrangement for piano solo of Glinka's song called The Lark, beautifully performed by Yevgeny Kisin. Now, in the 1860s, Balakirev takes on a few trips to the Caucasus. These are new and wild, exotic lands that have become part of the Russian Empire in recent decades. And while the social-political effects of these events were experiencing until these days, the lands were a source of inspiration for a huge number of Russian artists, poets, writers, and musicians. Pushkin, Lermontov, and Tolstoy are just to name a few who had their Caucasus works. The majestic beauty of luxuriant nature there, and the beauty of the inhabitants that harmonizes with it, all these things together made a deep impression on me. Since I interested myself in the vocal music there, I made the acquaintance of a Circassian prince who frequently came to me and played folk tunes on his instrument. That was something like a violin. One of them, called Islamé, a dance tune, pleased me extraordinarily. This Balakirev uh, later mentions in a letter. Balakirev, known for taking years if not decades to finish a piece, his first symphony took over three decades to be fully done, composed Islamé in the course of a month in 1869. This time, we're not going to do a deep analysis of the piece. I will just say it can be broken in three parts, not movements, but parts, with two distinct separate themes, and the third part being kind of a return to the first. You'll also notice how extremely difficult this piece is, technically. In fact, it's many times been called the most difficult work uh, in all solo piano repertoire. Maurice Ravel, when composing his suite Gaspar de la Nuit, about half a century after Islamé, is known to have said he wants to create something more difficult than Balakirev's Islamé. And the third movement of it, Scarbo, can indeed compete in difficulty with uh, Islamé. But this is to be created in 1908 in a totally different setting and style. Back in 1869, Nikolai Rubinstein, brother of Anton Rubinstein, founder of the Moscow Conservatoire and also sort of a friend-enemy of Balakirev, was the first performer of this work, which was also then in the repertoire of Liszt and stays a showpiece of virtuosity of many great pianists of our day. Let's hear it in the full, performed by Mikhail Pletnyov. Thank you. 
applause goes on and on for quite a while. I'm still amazed how this was the fifth encore in a very demanding program of a recital Mikhail Pletnyov gave in 2001 at Carnegie Hall. And for the audience, wow, that must have been totally overwhelming. There are many recordings out there of our piece Islami with Georgi Tsifra and Emil Gilels being probably my second favorites. And there is an exceptional recording of Simon Barer, but it is from 1936 and the quality is not amazing. So if you feel like that's not disturbing you much, take another 10 minutes and just listen to that. I think in our times, a piece like Islamé raises many questions. 
Are we allowed to perform, listen, or enjoy this piece? Does it become inappropriate when one knows more about it and its author? Is it only okay to listen to it in case you're not familiar with the views of its creator? And have I now put you listeners in an awkward position? Islamé has also been orchestrated numerous times, most notably by Alfredo Casella and Sergei Lepunov. And we'll finish the program with the orchestral version made by Alfredo Casella, as recorded by the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra under Kirill Kandrashen. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Pizzicato Ost. We will be back with you shortly. And for now, bye-bye.